my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Derek, co-founder and CTO of Actual, and they discuss how Actual helps large organizations meet their sustainability goals through an ESG platform, work they're doing to make the wool industry in New Zealand carbon neutral, and why environmental sustainability reporting doesn't mean much without a solid plan. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Your background is crazy. DOD fellow, like you have all these amazing credentials. Who's advising you on getting involved with this stuff? <laughs> like for the academic credentials? Um, yeah. Yeah, I just had a really great network of professors, mostly, who were just great uh, mentors. Um, and I think that's one of the advantages of like a liberal arts college environment, which is what felt like the right fit for me. Um, at that point in my life, I wanted like a little smaller, a little like more kind of getting, being able to get to know professors um, more as, as people. And that worked out really well um, because, you know, when, when you do get to know uh, the people that are advising you in that way, um, it can really, it really helps them help you, you know, because they, they know you really well um, also. So it was just a very good nurturing environment for figuring out what I wanted to do. And then how did you get that DOD fellow thing specifically? I'm curious because I, I would love to be in the, like in the movies where they're behind the scenes and they're meeting with the board. I assume that's what a DOD fellow is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's much less fancy than that. I think it was, uh, it's, well, oh, it's a wonderful program. It's just a, a fellowship for STEM fields, basically. My co-founder, Karthik, actually just by coincidence was also um, had that same fellowship in his graduate program. So they just do very broad support of um, fundamental research. In my case, it was in the psychological sciences, um, looking at cognitive psychology and a little bit of AI. And it's similar to other programs like the National Science Foundation fellowships and things that just take some of the practical headache off your shoulders in grad school, worrying about like um, teaching stipends and things like that and allow you to really focus. Um, so I was very um, grateful for that um, as, a, as a support in graduate school. Now, is that where you met your co-founder? No, we met much later. Um, I have two co-founders, one um, Rajesh, um, who I met about getting on for 10 years ago now, which is kind of disorienting every time I say it. But I, I joined one of his previous startups, um, which was called Heighten. So I joined there as a software engineer, um, got to know him really well, and we really um, connected over kind of a, a shared affinity for um, creative technology. We're both really into games and just thinking about the edges of creative tech um, and ways of applying it in unexpected ways, which, which um, is actually a theme that comes through in actual. Um, and then through Rajesh, um, Rajesh also knew Karthik from about that same time because he was an investor in one of Karthik's previous companies. So Rajesh introduced Karthik and I, um, and then the three of us just started riffing and talking and brainstorming. And um, yeah, that's, that's how we got started. Nice, nice. So did you say something about game programming? Were you doing video game programming? A little bit, yeah. It, games have always been like a huge um, interest of mine. I was from the Nintendo 8-bit era <laughs> of the old Nintendo Entertainment System. So way back in the day, like my first job was a paper route that I got like expressly because I really wanted to like save up dollars over many, many months of doing a paper route split with my best friend 
It took a long time. Sometimes I go back when I think about it, I go back and do the math. It was like five cents per paper <laughs> split two ways with my best friend. And it took a long time to get to that Nintendo Entertainment System. But yeah, that was just an immediate incredible love of mine that just the creativity of it and the kind of wonder of like all of the kinds of experiences that were possible. So that I think had a large amount to do with like putting me on the path to really being interested in building things, um, like building experiences and systems um, and eventually getting into engineering. Um, and then after grad school, I did uh, work for uh, briefly in, uh, in iOS games, working for a, a really great startup here um, in the Bay Area called Motion Math um, that was doing one of the first, I think, really creative uses of the iPad um, for educational games for kids, um, math games that were very, very creative and really um, leveraged like what was new and interesting about that device in a way that was for the time. Um, and I mean, this was at the very start of like the iPad era was really kind of visionary, I think. Um, so that was a lot of fun, really neat job to cut my teeth in the industry. Yeah, they've got some amazing. Uh, my wife homeschools our kids. We got a four-year-old and a three-year-old. My background: seventeen years as a software developer, not in any games or anything, mostly in enterprise business logic type stuff. And when I saw how advanced these technologies were for teaching these kids and how premium of an experience it was, it just mm-hmm. made me really happy inside because my daughter is like oddly in love with math and stuff. <laughs> She's oh, that's four. Awesome. Yeah. My son, no, not at all. <laughs> My son wants to go outside and throw rocks, but uh, which is fine. But like she she really she wakes up on Saturday and will ask us, Oh, can can we do schoolwork? And to her, that's like you know, taking the tablet <laughs> and going sweet. through some exercises and she progresses and they gamify it and all this stuff. So I was like, man, that was not how school was when I was this kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can be, I mean, it can be very adaptive to like where the where the kid is at in terms of their understanding, like the best systems do a really good job of that. Um, so it's definitely um, an example of using that technology to do something really beneficial and constructive, like the best the best um, educational games are really something special. Yeah, it's definitely putting pressure on the school system and the concept of grades over years, yeah. where it's more like it reminds me a lot of the software industry where it's just knowledge and ability to achieve. Mm-hmm. And that to me is beautiful because that means she can progress as fast as she wants to progress. And the software doesn't hold her back because of her age. It doesn't say we're right. not going to teach you this concept <laughs> right. because you're this age. It just lets you go. Yep. These, these next generation, man, Derek, they're going to be super smart. We got to watch out. <laughs> well, they're going to need to be. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what are you doing now? Well, for the last several years, I've been working with uh, my co-founders, Rajesh and Karthik, on Actual. And something we're tremendously passionate about, really feel like we've arrived at an important time. When we decided we were going to do something together, the question was really like, what's the most impactful thing we can do? Because Rajesh and I had worked in enterprise, Karthik had worked um, more in kind of consumer financial services. And those are all great, like traditional software industries, like lots of interesting problems to solve there and businesses to build. But at this point, you know, having done that and feeling like we were really well grounded in the basics of, you know, building a successful business, we wanted to kind of push the envelope and say, okay, what's a, what's like a real problem that exists outside of, you know, the confines of like SaaS businesses that needs to be solved. And the very obvious one for anybody thinking about this at this moment in history is sustainability. And like, 
how do we get ourselves out of this really deep hole um, that we've dug um, over the last, you know, the last decades. So that's what Actual is, is our um, answer to that question of what can a, a software company do. Um, and what we're building with it um, is an ESG transformation platform. Um, and it, the goal is to really provide a toolkit that's going to help enterprises, governments, like large organizations of all kinds, not just set goals for their environmental change or ESG strategy. Not that goals aren't important. I mean, you have to start with a goal. But the question that arises immediately after like the press release announcing your net zero goal is like, okay, so now what? Like, what do we do um, as an organization? And in cases where the industry is very like grounded in the real world. So like energy, logistics, fashion is really interesting vertical that we're very involved with. Those questions are non-trivial. Like there's a lot of um, real creative thinking and and kind of very large scale organizational change that has to happen. Um, so we're trying to build the software to help make that possible. Now I talked to some Fortune 500 type companies and but they were essentially monitoring their supply chain for slave labor and things of that nature. And then they've identified a section of their supply chain and then they addressed it. You're not building tools to like monitor the ethics of their supply chain. You're building tools that helps them, once they set a goal, have accountability and update on progress towards the goal. Yes. So the accountability is super important, but there's the question of like planning in that space is really what we're most focused on. And what we realized as we were thinking about this is that there's, there's a, a big gap that exists in terms of technology to support planning. So imagine I'm, I'm a company that has a big physical footprint. Like say I'm doing fulfillment um, for e-commerce and I have warehouses, I have trucks, and that's going to generate a lot of carbon. So there's a huge lift to get to something sustainable. If I know exactly what I need to build, like I'm, I have, have an idea in mind for, I have thought this through and I know what kind of sustainable warehouse I need to build and where it needs to be and how the, um, how the EV charging facilities are going to be laid out. At that point, there's software to do that. Like that's the world of like AutoCAD and, you know, there's like very specialist solar planning software that can tell you like, you know, to the degree exactly like how to cant your solar panels and where to put them. But between the goal and that point where you're really ready to like um, do an implementation plan, there's this huge gulf of conceptual planning um, that is not addressed by any tool that's available today. And typically people have done that kind of thing. Like what's, what, what would I do in that situation? What would you do? We'd probably sit down with Excel, like in the absence of anything else, like as we're trying to think through a complex plan, you know, at some point you're going to bust out Excel and try and start like tinkering with the dimensions of, of a problem. And that's great for one person um, and we've all worked that way but as soon as you need to like bring on a second person or a team or communicate your idea that you're having to somebody else excel really um, starts to kind of feel a little bit creaky because it's not designed for that use case so what we're trying to think about is this world of like conceptual agile planning where you're stepping into this wilderness of trying to remake your business in an ESG forward positive way. And you're going to be faced with just a continuing procession of like forks in the road of like, well, do we buy chargers or do we lease them? And do we move our facilities to like a greenfield location so we can kind of restart the whole thing in, in, a, in a state of the art way in terms of the, the, how the facility is laid out sustainability wise? Or do we try and retrofit? Where do we raise financing for this kind of transformation? 
all of these questions. And in that kind of bifurcating tree, the state space of exploration gets like really large and overwhelming. So what would a better way to do that be? And actually, as we were talking about this, um, one thing that all us, the three co-founders have in common from when we were growing up, going back to the game inspiration, is that we all played SimCity. Um, and it made kind of an impression on us. Um, I was, uh, you know, at some point early on when we were talking about this, Rajesh and I were realizing that, you know, probably around the very same years, the very same time, like literally on opposite sides of the globe, we were both like playing SimCity, like in our in our early childhood. Like I have very vivid memories of waking up before a summer job, like trying to fit in like, you know, 60 minutes on my city before I had to get ready for um, to go go into the summer work. So we started as it started as kind of a just a fun thing for us to play with of like oh wouldn't it be neat if you could do this kind of like planning for large scale real world change like sim city like i could just pick up my warehouse and try it here try it there and like you know see the numbers showing me some reflection of like is this a good idea or not and the more we thought about it and the more we kind of workshopped it, it gradually morphed from um something that was just fun for us to think about to being like oh well Maybe like if you could do that, like if you could have something that was that understandable and tactile and um, communicable, but it was supported by real scientifically grounded models so that it could give you quantitative predictions that weren't toys, but were like really good projections, um, that would be incredibly powerful. And that's what we have have been working hard to build over the last several years is like, can we bring that kind of planning um, and that kind of motivation, really, because these are hard problems that take long time to solve. So people have to be working on something that feels better um, to work with than Excel. Like, no, no offense to Excel. Again, it's a great tool. But we're talking about both the frontiers of, like, complex planning and the frontiers of, like, helping people not feel defeated by these massive problems. And that, that requires, like, a, a very different kind of solution. Yeah, can you pick up and drag and drop buildings and do that stuff in your software? We are working on that. We started with streetlights. <laughs> that okay. was the very first thing, just to like get you know get the get that feeling of like can we can we make a model where you drop a a node of the model basically onto a map and the node at that point has to kind of suck up some information about its environment. It has to get baked into the map in some manner and then use that to make predictions about its energy consumption and its cost and things of that nature. Um, so streetlight model was actually the very first thing we built. And the most cutting edge things that we're working on now are actually in, in the fashion industry and uh, wool in particular. Um, so we're closer to picking up sheep and moving them around than, uh, than buildings at the moment. But same principle. And, uh, and that's been really, exciting to see that starting to go from early prototypes to something that's now being um, being used to really drive planning at um, some large, um, really large consumer fashion brands. Oh, nice. So you're actually in at some companies, you've got users in the wild and all of that. That's right. So we have a partnership with a really wonderful company in New Zealand called the New Zealand Merino Company. And they're basically like they have revitalized and are really helping to drive um, the wool industry in New Zealand. And when you see a map of the farms in their network, and we're talking like 400 something farms over um, three and a half million acres of land on a comparatively small um, island country, it's a huge part of the social fabric of New Zealand, this kind of agriculture and, and the wool growing in particular. So 
So working with them since about uh, November of last year, um, and what we've put together so far is an acre by acre plan for that three and a half million acres that is focused on uh, regenerative planting. And the goal here is like sheep are the big culprit, no fault of their own, but sheep are really intense carbon emitters because um, their their manure gives off CO2 equivalents. Um, they're, they're churning up the ground and the grass. They have this enteric fermentation like cows. You've probably heard about like the cow burping controversies of various kinds. So they're emitting CO2 and CO2 equivalents from their gut. And when you have three and a half million acres of sheep that are supplying like some of the world's biggest um, fashion brands, um, that winds up being a quite substantial amount of carbon. But it's also, and this is the part that we're working on, like a large amount of land. So the question is, if we manage that land like really cleverly and made the optimal use of um, areas that are not being used for the sheep, could we inset carbon? So instead of like buying offsets somewhere else, the vision is, can we make the land itself sequester as much carbon as the sheep emit so that you transform this from a really carbon heavy industry into something that is actually neutral? And the first cut of the plan uh, that we've worked on with them, not finished by any stretch, um, has achieved through replanting. So doing some computational modeling about like, where could we put native forests? Where can we like fit them in into these properties and places that make sense? We can achieve around a 50% year over year reduction um, at the start of like a growth program, um, escalating to around 70%. And that's huge. That's as equivalent to in like terms that are easier to think about rather than just tons of carbon, that would be equivalent to if we could just wave a magic wand and replace every vehicle in San Francisco with an EV, um, that's an equivalent amount of CO2 reduction. So we're incredibly excited about that because it's sort of uh, the rubber meeting the road for theory into practice here and saying that like in a, in a global industry, we can actually achieve reductions that are material, um, not just sort of nibbling around the edges. And that's really exciting. Oh, that's pretty cool. So did you factor in when you did the modeling for that, the amount of carbon it would take to actually plant the rainforest? Yeah. So the way we think about these models, um, and this is really important, actually, is that there's a temptation with these things. Ironically, it can be more tempting for really high-functioning organizations to think in terms of that quickly expand into kind of boiling the ocean. And there's a there's a term that's really has a lot of imagination attached to it at this moment called digital twins and the idea of like, can we make a digital twin yeah. for, you know, a thing. And I, as an engineer, like I completely understand the appeal of that. Like, it's like, oh <laughs> yeah, that would be fun to build that. Um, but if you think about it for a complicated problem, if you succeeded in making a digital twin, which embeds every, every aspect of the real world, you now have like a simulation that's as complicated to reason about as the real world. And that's not what models are supposed to do. Like models are supposed to distill and reduce complexity so that we can focus our attention on kind of the most important causal levers. So when we're working on models what, with our customers, what we try and emphasize is let's start with something simple and then we're going to like layer complexity onto that. Like we're making this beautiful cake and, you know, you start with just the sponge, I guess, <laughs> the inside of the cake, and then we're going to gradually like embellish. So in our case, um, we've started with really focused on um, getting the planning right about where can the forest go and like making sure that it doesn't impinge on other um, things that the farms need to run. And then being able to total that up across these 400 farms and get a picture of, okay, roughly speaking, where are we? 
if we went all in on native planting, how far could we get? And now that we know the answer is, oh, that's pretty far. Like that's further than we were expecting at the outset. Now we can dig in and start saying, okay, now what's the next most important like causal lever that we need to build into this thing. And one of those is economic in terms of the planting, like how much would it cost and where could that money come from? Um, and another one is about um, kind of the, what you might call the fugitive emissions from a process of planting. Like as you're driving the trucks up there, like there's going to be um, emissions that are um, incurred in the course of that planting. That one, fortunately, from what we've um, understood in the rest of the model is going to be pretty insignificant relative to, because the sheep are raised the carbon stakes so high that actually we don't even at this point even need to factor in things like the farm equipment in terms of the carbon budget, because those are in the noise. Uh, the sheep are such a significant driver. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer to that question, but it's important lens into this um, idea of like reducing complexity and being able to like um, defer or let go of dimensions of the problem, which might seem super important at the outset, like from our engineer's mind. But when once you get a better understanding of the magnitudes of um, the numbers and the factors involved, um, a lot of it you can kind of cleave away. And that's super important for all these companies that are facing these really heavy lifts. Um, because if you start with a boil the ocean approach, you're going to fail. Like we just, I mean, you just are. Um, so you have to be yeah, able to. Yeah, but people it. love the term digital twin, Derek. So you, I know. You I mean, do, I get it. I love it too, but. <laughs> have your marketing team. Look, I'll, I'll solve the problem for you guys right now. And you guys just send me a check. Okay. <laughs> have your marketing, marketing team, call it a low resolution digital twin. Yes, we have yeah. digital twins. They're low resolution yeah. digital trends and we increase the resolution as time goes on. That is pretty much exactly what we tell our customers. You would be surprised when, when we've talked to these companies, I feel like in our customer development conversations, um, of course, the most important thing that we bring to the table is our technology, but there's also, <laughs> there's a little bit of a therapeutic relationship that can take place as well in the sense that Many companies that have made these pronouncements um, have been stuck for 12 months, 18 months beyond like making a commitment and then the realization of like the magnitude of the change hits. Um, and they get stuck in a really deep rut of analysis paralysis because, you know, when you have this huge problem to solve um, and it's one you haven't dealt with before, like where where is the end of the thread? Like where can you start um, beginning to like reel in and and make some progress? So, in fact, like when when we're kind of preaching this different way of thinking, this new kind of like um, sustainability modeling gospel to these customers, it's about empowering them to say it doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, it shouldn't be because if you try and make it perfect, you're going to stand still for another eighteen months while your competitors potentially make progress. Um, and we, we truly believe that these the transformation to an ESG economy is um, a crucible in which some companies are going to leap ahead and succeed and set themselves up to be dominant in the coming decades, and some are going to flatline. So the idea of prizing action and forward progress over perfection is critical for everybody uh, dealing with this kind of, these kind of sustainability issues because we're, we're on a ticking clock at this point and pragmatics and forward motion um, is going to carry the day. Well, what happens if, like, I've seen these contests, I know carbon's a big one, there's more, it's more dynamic than that, than just carbon, but that's a big one and that's a lot of where the conversation starts. And there's been these contests and there's been these devices built that can suck carbon out of the atmosphere mm -hmm. in a relatively short period of time. We've, we've you know, put the challenge out and have gotten a response. Obviously, there's 
all sorts of questions in terms of how do we make them more efficient and cost less and all this stuff. But if we have that ability to then essentially as a planet regulate our carbon in our atmosphere, then does this stuff still matter? Well, until we have a way of like applying those kinds of innovations at scale um, over a, a reasonable time horizon, like I, I wish we could live in that world, but I, I don't think realistically we do because uh, we, we don't have the economic resources to put like state-of-the-art carbon reclamation facilities like everywhere that's going to need them. So we have to work with the tools that are kind of closer at hand. And one of those tools in New Zealand, for example, is a tree, <laughs> which is a lot less expensive. It's a matter of like, you know, can we build a plan that allows us to use um, the pieces that we have right now that are economically feasible and that we can deploy at scale um, without, um, without any additional weight on our organization? Can we use those to start making progress? So absolutely, these kinds of the, the super cutting edge approaches that you're talking about will have a place as like focused kind of pillars in, in very like uh, in scenarios that are hard to get traction on otherwise. But when you think about the, the tens of thousands and millions of um, sites in the world that need some kind of remediation, you have to have a, a really broad approach that admits um, all, all kinds of improvements and not, um, not ignore the ones that are um, uh, easier to implement and potentially like lower impact, but much lower cost and much easier to get in motion so it's an inclusive approach, I guess, is what I'm saying, rather than one that um, we think is going to have like a magic kind of key. Yeah, I like the fact that as a species, we're taking a multi-threaded approach to solving the problem, mm -hmm. right? No one's, you're not like sitting there and say, I'm going to spend my time developing some sort of credit card app because this person over here won a million dollar prize on sucking the carbon out. Like you, <laughs> you say, this is who I am. These are the skills I have. These are the resources around me. What can we do today? And so I absolutely, I love that. And I, I love the fact that you doing that and those other people doing that, ultimately, I believe it'll get us to where we want to be faster. So I think it's pretty great all in all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're about the, you know, we're trying to create the canvas um, for planning and thinking here. And there's all kinds of paints that are going to be um, make interesting, interesting splashes on that canvas as we as we work to solve these problems. But getting the mental canvas out there that an organization can use these large enterprises that um, are going to carry a huge amount of the weight in making these changes, getting a, a canvas that we can all look at and work from together is going to be super duper important. And that's the problem that we're working to solve. Now, I want to talk about the term ESG because just to make it super clear, I 100% care about the environment, super into, you know, I have kids, want the world to be good for them. I value multiple different approaches, all of that type of stuff. Recently, and I noticed you use the term ESG a lot and like your marketing on your website. And I think, you know, five, six years ago was when I noticed that term start to come about. And it wasn't controversial at all. It was just like, oh, we're the ESG team and we're the people at the company that are trying to figure out like how we can not kill the planet or, or whatnot. And then I think recently it's become more like politicized. I don't know if that's the right word, yeah. but Elon Musk came out re, you know, a couple months ago and he was like, ESG is garbage. Mm -hmm. And there's been some controversy around that term. How have you as a co-founder 
you know, it's so important because I'm a founder too, right? I'm a business mm. owner and yeah. you have to go where the budget is and you have to align your product with the terms that the people who are spending the budget. So if you're an ESG product, you need to brand yourself as ESG because those are the people at the company that are going to purchase your product or work with you. But as this term has become, I guess, controversial, for lack of a better word, how have you looked at this emergence of people being split and not liking ESG as a co-founder? Yeah, I think the some of the pushback on ESG that we're seeing at this point is actually quite healthy for the space. Um, and the my reasoning there is that we're we're going right now through a transformation where we're moving from ESG as something which was a you know a nice set of pages that got bolted onto a company's quarterly report and it you know probably have some nice pictures of windmills and you're talking about like you know the the how important it is to your company but what are you, it, it doesn't answer the question what are you doing like what does that mean operationally um, for the company and I think that the pushback on what might, as a kind of collective term, be called greenwashing, um, as, as I'm sure you've seen that, that term bandied about um, in these conversations, is totally valid. Because what, what we've learned, and I think the markets have learned, is that um, ESG claims these days are material to companies. There's uh, studies that we've looked at that show pretty definitively you can raise capital less expensively um, if you have like a, a strong ESG posture than you can if you don't. And, you know, some companies have seized on that and by saying, okay, well, we can kind of fake an ESG plan or we can just act like we have one. Um, and, and maybe that's the easiest way to do this. There's always going to be actors like that, right? In any kind of, any kind of complex space that involves real commitments. And so what we see Actual is doing is building a platform that's going to help the companies that are the good actors distance themselves from the companies that are just prattling and not making any material progress. Um, So really, we're about turning ESG into a verb if you will, like it's it's something that you have to do, like it's you have to walk the walk um, and get us out of the space where ESG was this kind of fuzzy abstraction, which um, seemed like the right thing, but um, companies didn't really have the tools to dig in and make that like a thoroughgoing part of their operational models. So the pressure to operationalize is is quite healthy, um, and we think a platform like Actual um, is going to move ESG away from the space of being sort of a nebulous commitment that people don't really understand and that might not be that impactful to what it needs to be, which is something that is about transforming for the next um, the next phase of um, the global economy. Does your software do anything for, it sounds mostly like the carbon emissions and the sheep and all of that, but also lumped in with the ESG is a lot of human rights related type issues. Yeah, that's Does right. your software go over there at all or is it just focus on like the material carbon type stuff? No, we're very deliberate about the fact that we don't want to build just a carbon tool or just a tool for water or any of the other um, kind of sub-domains that um, roll up into ESG. And in fact, I think um, what we've learned really is that it would be difficult to do that well in any one of those verticals without touching many others, including the ones that are about the S in ESG, like the social impacts. The reason for that is straightforward. It's just, you know, the the fact of the way our world has worked is that um, things that are polluting, things that have like a really negative environmental effect attached to them, they don't land in the wealthiest areas, right? Like these are not things that get put in in a well-to-do places. They get um, pushed into um, the 
uh, into regions and into places where that have less political power. Um, and that tends to correlate with lower economic power. So solving these problems, solving the environmental sustainability problem by its nature, um, because of that is going to touch um, social issues. And so we're really serious about making a general purpose toolkit. This is really built into the design of our architecture that you can point at um, all kinds of different challenges. Um, we've worked, for example, on medical center models um, that are about, you know, how much increased medical service can we bring to a region that doesn't have it? And they're, the calculations that we're doing look a lot different from um, sheep on a wool farm in New Zealand, um, but it's the same computational toolkit powering it. And that's really by design because we want to be able to grapple with the, the horizontal um, breadth of these really complicated problems, not just a narrow vertical piece as you would get if you were building a specific carbon tool, for example. Okay. Can you give me a more detailed example of the social type modeling? Yeah. So one of the projects that we've been most excited to be a part of and has just been a, a wonderful effort um, is work that we're doing with a organization called Giga. Um, that's And their mission is to bring the internet to every school in the developing world. So that's their vision. It's like literally every any school anywhere, 100 miles away from civilization, a tiny school, how can we build a world where that school has broadband internet? And we've been building models with them about what it would mean to pick a country. Um, and we've um, been working with um, some um, countries in Africa in particular that have very low internet penetration in, in their rural schools and figuring out what would it cost to deploy internet to all of these places and how do we solve the kind of infrastructural hurdles that are there. So uh, these rural schools, for example, you can't just, you know, bring a router and plug it into the wall because there's no power typically. So to add the internet, you have to figure out a power story. And of course, that power story uh, to be sustainable can't be a diesel generator. It has to be something to do with solar. Um, so there's a little, there's a very intricate kind of mini puzzle for each of these schools. And we've worked on doing that, um, the modeling to solve those mini puzzles at scale. And then importantly, being able to roll that up into a cost model um, that would allow countries to, to think about financing um, in a way that um, is orderly um, and, and that would make sense to um, external investors. So that's been really exciting and, and an example of the ways in which we think of sustainability as about more than just carbon. It's about human sustainability. And in some places, that's about education. And that's something that we're just thrilled to be working on. Hey, there you go. Now you get to leverage your co-founder's financial services experience and yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can make make money as a loan originator. <laughs> well, many of these, yeah, it's I mean, there's a ton of financing sources for these things that go beyond kind of private markets. So thinking about organizations that really are about um, international development finance. Um, and they need financial models too. And that's one of the things that I think is really healthy in the work that we're doing here is to um, try and bring clarity to financial modeling that goes beyond um, kind of fuzzy philanthropic thinking. Not that there's anything wrong with um, philanthropic thinking. I don't want to make it sound like that, but it's about clarity and accountability. If we're going to invest a huge amount of money into uh, international development effort, how do we um, have a plan against which we can make sure that accountability is emerging and that the things are happening that are supposed to be happening and that the money isn't disappearing into a sinkhole somewhere that um, is can kind of go unseen because the planning isn't um, clear enough. Yeah. Well, I love what you guys are doing. You're basically making tools to allow people to achieve their goals in an easier way than 
existed before. So I, I like the flavor. I like the the what you guys are doing, and I think it's super cool that you you've taken this SimCity approach. And you know what? Right when you said that, it made the style of the graphics on your website make so much more sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I learned recently when we were talking about this and talking about it with customers that um, SimCity 2000 is actually part of now like uh, the MoMA. MoMA has it in their collection. It was added as part of a, an exhibit on design and childhood in, in, the, in the 20th century. And I don't think that's a, it's not like a random inclusion, right? It's, it, it's, it's something that, it's been an incredible learning for me talking with um, people doing all kinds of jobs across many industries. And gosh, I would say eight times out of 10, when you mention SimCity to somebody, they get that kind of sparkle <laughs> in their eye and you know that, you know that they are imagining like they're seeing themselves having some um, intersection with this uh, with this game at some point. And for me, that's really speaks to like, you know, why do kids play with blocks, for example, there's something elemental and wonderful, uh, wonderfully human about taking a complex vision in your head and like being able to materialize it in like a tangible way in front of you. And um, blocks are one way of doing that. SimCity was another way that that retained that kind of essence of tangibility because of its really clever graphical style and the, the affordances of the interactions. And that same DNA underpins what we're building um, to bring that same sensibility of like, I can make a complicated plan and I can communicate it in a way that has some charisma um, and that you don't have to be a, a world expert in solar or carbon accounting to see see the potential in a vision um, that's built on a platform like Actual. And uh, we think that's essential um, for solving these problems. I want to switch gears real quick as we start to wrap up. You had written an article about the hidden structure of over-imitation in kids. It's completely separate from this conversation. <laughs> I was curious, as I was reading it, do you have kids? I do. Yeah, we have a, a young daughter. What are your thoughts on like, did that help inspire you or was this written before your daughter or what? Yeah, so it was written long before, but it's based on some really striking work. I mean, the, the single most striking thing, and I, this is why I did my dissertation on it, uh, paper, the most striking paper I read in graduate school, which, you know, when you enter a PhD program, you're sort of like, where is my, when is that cosmic moment of inspiration going to strike where I will, I will see a problem and be like, that's the one, like, that's what I want to invest um, all of this time and effort into solving. And for me, it was a paper by Vicki Horner and Andrew Whiten, who are some primate comparative researchers in, in the UK. And they did this experiment where they demonstrated like a simple series of actions um, on a little kind of um, toy to chimps and to uh, little kids, kind of preschool age kids. And the absolutely just amazing finding, which was just it un unrolls so many questions is that, and sorry, I should back up and say that the sequence of actions that they demonstrated for both of these groups, some of them were required. There were goal-directed actions that helped to kind of open the toy and get a little prize out. And some were totally irrelevant. It'd be like, you know, stop and tap a stick on your head and then continue with what you're doing. And what they found was that the chimps were like not fooled. They were just, they totally omitted the irrelevant actions and just went straight for like the shortest kind of causal line of like, what do I need to do to open this toy? The children, on the other hand, reproduced all of those extraneous steps. So it's this amazing result in which like suddenly you have a, a population of chimpanzees that are behaving in a way that's like materially 
smarter on some kind of axis than children. So why, why is that? What's happening? So the work that I did in my graduate program at Yale with Frank Kyle um, and Lori Santos, two wonderful advisors and, and um, incredible researchers, was to really dig into that question um, and unpack, is it, you know, the question is, are the kids just being kind of, they just being a little bit dense or is there something else going on? Um, and that's what we focused on for my dissertation. So it wasn't just because the monkeys were smart enough to know, like they just wanted the food. No, it's a really interesting scenario in which all of the social learning um, that we're so well adapted to doing, all of the learning by watching. And in some respects, the irony is that this kind of observational learning is one of the things that really differentiates us um, from other primates um, and has been the scaffolding that's allowed human intelligence to evolve so quickly, that kind of social learning ability. It's, it's getting confused in a situation like this because the, uh, basically the kids are encoding the intentional action that they see as something that must be important because the human's doing it intentionally. So in a sense, it's kind of like the social part of their reasoning is overriding the causal and it's a, so it's kind of like a glitch. It's like a bug in the program where 99.99% of the time that program is incredibly adaptive. But in this one odd circumstance, like you can, you can see the bug. Um, and just as in software development, often, you know, the bugs are really revealing of like the larger structure of things. Many times you see structure that you wouldn't see in, in a program that's operating smoothly. <laughs> and it's the same thing with, uh, with human cognition in some of these cases. Uh, and that was what was really fun to figure out. That's so cool. Well, you got <laughs> lucky with a girl. I've got a girl and a boy and another boy <laughs> on the way. Man, this is great. Is there anything that you wanted to get out there that we didn't cover already? Yeah. So the two things. Um, one is that in our space, in the ESG space, and this gets to a question that you asked about, like the pushback on ESG. One of the things that I think um, a lot of our the customers that we talk to are still learning, and that that's really important for people to think critically about is the difference between accounting and reporting and having a plan. And there's a lot of tools in the ESG technology space now that are very focused on accounting and reporting, like getting a very precise measure of your carbon footprint, for example. And that's valuable, super valuable, but it doesn't replace having a plan, right? Like if I can, if I can measure exactly precisely how many miles um, my car is going to go before I run out of power and I'm on some rural road, like that's, it's good that I know that, but like, I need a plan. <laughs> I, it, once I know exactly how many miles it is, now the question is like, okay, what are we going to do about that? So that's, that's something that I just think is really important for people who are working at these companies that have these ESG commitments to think critically about, set the goal. It's fine to have measurements that help you understand where you are today, but don't lose sight of the fact that like at the end of the day, you need a, a plan of action. Um, and, and that's something that can get overlooked, I think, in, in, as we're starting to learn about this collectively. And lastly, we are hiring. So we're <laughs> looking for leaders and engineers and people who are passionate about um, all dimensions of this problem. We're very excited to meet those people and tell them more about what we're working on. What is your website? It is actualhq.com. And then I'm assuming you have a careers tab or something of that nature. That's right. Right off the homepage, you'll find the about us and careers. And it's been one of the things that gives me a real hope and um, excitement about this problem is seeing the number of people who have done work of all kinds in technology and other fields who um, are at a point in their career where they're like, the next thing I do, I want to do climate. Like I'm doing a climate search, looking for climate companies. And that's 
wonderful to me. Not that everyone has to work on this, obviously, but you know, we need the best and the brightest. Um, this is our moonshot. Like this is this generation's moonshot. Absolutely. Um, but it's going to have implications that ripple for generations. Um, and we've got us all these problems. Um, so it's wonderful to see so many people kind of, um, ready to pick up, pick up their work implements, whether that's a keyboard or a pen and, uh, and really dig in. Yeah. As pessimistic as it can sometimes feel, I, I'm an optimist that I believe that ultimately we want good. I think most of the differences and issues are communication differences. I think most people agree on the destination that we want to get to. There's just a lot of disagreement on the path to get there yeah. and, and sort of some of the cultural rules to govern us as we, as we you know, take the journey. Yeah. And defeating that sense of it being hopeless is so important, right? Correct. That's, and I think we've anybody who's worked in the space or even just existed on planet Earth at this time has has felt that just weight of like, are we just stuck? Like, is it is this just the end? And nobody solves a problem like this from a place of hopelessness. So that's one thing that I hope we bring to our customers and um, to anyone who we have an opportunity to talk to about this work is like, let's start from a place of hope, like roll up our sleeves and understand that these are huge problems, um, you know, generational problems, but we can make progress if we just begin and, you know, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good as we talked about earlier. Let's just do one step at a time and understand that it's a long road, but let's maintain hope because that's how we're going to get out of this hole. Boom. That's a mic drop moment, Derek. <laughs> and we made a podcast. Awesome. How do you feel? I feel great. Yeah. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed that a lot. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.